Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J.FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska, plus an interview with rapper and UVA professor A.D. Carson from the Virginia Humanities Show, With Good Reason. But first, we sit down with Charlottesville Tomorrow. Today we hear from Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes and editor Elliot Robinson. Emily Hayes has been working on a series on food justice in collaboration with CBS 19. Tell me a little bit about this food justice collaboration that you've been working on. Yeah, so it's really a fascinating topic because Charlottesville has this huge food economy, um, but that's really not benefiting everyone. So one in six Charlottesville residents struggle to find reliable and affordable food. And in some ways, that's because of the way the food economy is set up here. So I did the reporting for this series with Brianna Hamblin of CBS 19, and our article is linked to her video versions. We sat in on the same interviews and then like sort of wrapped it in different information. It's in the way that we were looking at this is that there was a lot of information here and it needed to be presented in more than just words. So working with CBS 19 to have a video component was absolutely crucial to get the story across. So you said food insecurity exists partially because of the way the food economy is set up. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, so one example is grocery stores. Charlottesville used to have more neighborhood grocery stores, but now almost all of them are sort of chains on the edge of the city. Um, the reason for this decline seems to be partially competition from these big big chains and partially related to desegregation and urban renewal. So in 1950, there were 11 grocery stores owned by African-American families in the area. Jordy Yeager has done this through his research on um, racial covenants in the city. And there were four grocery stores in Vinegar Hill, which was a predominantly African-American neighborhood and business district that was raised in urban renewal. So Chantel Bingham of the Charlottesville Food Justice Network said that these grocery stores would have sourced their food from black-owned farms. So it was this whole economy, and urban renewal broke those relationships. She said that more and more, we're seeing that people of color are losing control over food access in the food economy, referring to the period after desegregation. So you can see this disparity in health indicators. Um, African-American and Charlottesville residents are four times more likely to die from diabetes than white residents. That's just sort of one point that that demonstrates how food insecurity actually, you know, affects your health as well. Could you talk a little bit about how these grocery store disparities are connected to transportation? Yeah, sure. Um, So I talked to some women who live in Charlottesville, but they are really struggling with transportation access and food access. So they patch together all of these different kinds of, you know, food programs and transportation programs, they have cerebral palsy. And so that means they basically are unable to work. So then they have to patch together Social Security and then on that very, very limited income, buy things from the grocery store. So they were saying, you know, sometimes when they don't have food, they eat just eggs. 
Um, but they're still really, really committed to healthy food and are like, you know, it's really important. Everyone should eat healthy because, because that will lower their doctor's bills. Transportation is a really key part of this for them because they don't feel comfortable walking around in Charlottesville. It's not possible sometimes. And they live in the woolen mills. The next grocery store is like up on Pantops on Giant and it's really hard to get there. They take Jaunt, which is a bus service. And so the, the Food Justice Network is proposing making sure that low-income neighborhoods have it within the neighborhood so then you can walk. An example of a place that kind of works like that already is Reed's on Preston Avenue. And they said that, you know, they have walking, sort of a walking train come through and people will pick up multiple segments of, of their groceries multiple times a day. As transportation is a huge barrier to food access in the area. As a lot of the chain grocery stores come up, they like to be on a major highway to attract as many people as possible, but then that blocks out people who don't have cars or would rather walk or use alternative modes of transportation to get to them, like for example, almost all of our chain grocery stores are along 5th Street or along uh, Route 29. And even if you live across the street from some of them, if you wanted to walk to the store, it's almost impossible to get there unless you get on the bus and you have to take a security route around to get just across the street. So what can be done about this disparity? The Charlottesville Food Justice Network convened a two-day workshop with both food nonprofits, um, the people that those nonprofits are serving, and leaders in the low-income community. So one of the recommendations that came out of this was to create more community gardens and fresh markets that are by and for residents. And there are other, you know, ideas that I've heard bouncing around as well. You know, some communities are limiting convenience stores because those tend not to provide healthy food. It's more packaged food. You know, the cost of land in Charlottesville is really expensive. So Chantel Bingham was saying, you know, she was part of a group that looked at starting a cooperative fresh market at Kim's Market in Fifeville, which is something that residents have really, you know, been excited about and really want. But the land is too expensive to make that business work. So she was saying, you know, she wants to the city and the community to start thinking of food as a human right and that maybe this is something where we have to treat it as like a community asset and it needs support. What other parts of the food economy are related to this issue? Yeah, so there's the people who cook at the many restaurants around Charlottesville are also facing inse- food insecurity themselves. And so I talked to Ryan East who said that as a cook, He worked long hours and had a minimal food allowance, which meant that he was eating mostly by tasting what he was cooking. Um, So it was like, he said, burger here, you know, like a a chicken, chicken tender here, fry there. The average salary for food and hotel workers in Charlottesville in 2018 was $10.25 an hour, according to the Virginia Employment Commission. The cost of food, though, takes a huge chunk out of that paycheck. Um, along with housing. So people end up working multiple jobs often. Right, and it just is a compounding problem. As Emily mentioned earlier, the cost of land has become too prohibitive for some grocery stores to open in town. The wages that some of these restaurant workers are making are also too little for them to find a reasonable place to live in Charlottesville and also deal with some of the food costs. So all of these issues are intertwined. It's going to take both the city and the county to take a 
part look at how to address these issues to help some of the people who are in the service field and other lower income people of being able to access healthy things to eat and also living in a healthy place that has access to those healthy things to eat. One of your articles focuses on a program that's trying to change this, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a chef in town, Antoine Brinson, who is working with the city to develop Go Cook. You know, he's sort of on his uh, fifth round of these five-week culinary boot camps. The boot camps, you know, teach cooking skills and certain certifications, but it's really focused on career development. And then it's also about the restaurant culture, Brinson's Ed. Um, it's about investing in your employees rather than assuming that someone can change the world making nothing. So back to Ryan East, who I mentioned earlier, he was one of the students in this program, and now he works at the University of Virginia Inn at Darden. He said that they have an employee buffet. They get to eat the same things that his clients eat and an unlimited amount that doesn't come out of his paycheck. And it also brings some of the creativity back into cooking, and he's really excited. He's now connected to these chefs like Antoine um, and, and the chef's that he works with so that he can test out this barbecue sauce he's developing and get real critique from from professionals. A lot of wealthier Charlottesville residents really pride themselves on living in such a foodie town. It's a big part of the culture here. What can those residents do to support the people working in these restaurants? Well, I think one way would be to sort of plug into the Charlottesville Food Justice Network because they are really working on drawing their recommendations from low-income communities. And so, you know, if you plug in there, then you can make sure that you're supporting um, recommendations that the, that the community actually wants. And also, because these chain stores are able to buy things in bulk, so they tend to have lower prices than some more local places, it would be helpful if there are some sort of collectives that are set up that can help subsidize those costs for lower-income people to get access to better food choices. As always, thank you so much for coming in. (laughs) Thank you. Emily Hayes is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Elliot Robinson is the news editor. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEEJ FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and TEEJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Well, here on Soundboard, we also cover state news and politics, and as we do each week, we turn to our friend and journalist Peter Galaska, who writes over at Bacon's Rebellion and lives in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Morning. Well, Peter, one of the big stories this week was Jamestown's 400th anniversary, uh, not so much just the anniversary, but also the keynote speaker that they brought for it. Take me through what's going on. Well, it was the, down in Jamestown, it was the 400th anniversary of the opening of a representational body that evolved into the Virginia General Assembly and, you know, in turn, perhaps Congress and things like that. Uh, Governor Ralph Northam invited President Donald Trump more than a year ago, and Trump finally accepted. And there was a lot of protest about that. Many, many Democrats, including the Black Caucus, uh, refused to attend. 
And then, of course, there was controversy there. Uh, there are several takeaways from it. Number one, Trump really did not embarrass himself, which is kind of unusual. He gave a pretty straight you know, kind of, uh, you know, speech there, remark and everything else. However, he was interrupted by a, a delegate, uh, Ibrahim Samira, who's a Democrat from Fairfax, who held up a sign saying uh, deport hate in the middle of that. That, of course, brought a, uh, a blowback from the uh, state GOP, Tommy Normans of the Senate was really rather rude in his response. And um, Speaker of the House uh, of Delegates, uh, Kirk Cox, was also, he wasn't as rude, but he was pretty negative about this. And it, it did, what this did, it really focused in many ways a lot of the uh, confusion and a lot of the potential of the coming uh, General Assembly elections coming up in November. How so? Take me through the the preview of well. On the one hand, um, you know, you know, I don't know how to play it because it, it, the editorial writers in the state are all over the place. For one thing, it shows that um, the Democrats still can run against Donald Trump, and he's, Trump is still overall making really kind of uh, embarrassing remarks, and uh, so that's that's a, that's a given. The other problem, though, for the Democrats, according to some editorial writers, is that the Democrats, you know. You know, some say they should have just showed up and kept quiet and let let it go, because you know, giving this kind of different kind of response. For example, uh, Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor under siege for sexual accusations, did attend, while Lavar Stoney, uh, another African American leading Democratic politician who's the mayor of Richmond, did not attend. And this kind of uh, division within the Democratic Party is something that gives the Republicans some cover. So it, it just makes things a little bit, you know, because the Democrats could very well sleep, sweep at least one house, maybe both, come uh, November. Well, you know, one thing to remark on, if nothing else, is that the Jamestown event was supposed to be the celebration of, of Virginia's history, a celebration of, of sort of American history writ large. Uh, and it ended up mm-hmm. being really the story, just another story about Trump. Um, yeah, it, it, you're right. That's that's really kind of interesting because, I mean, um it is. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I know you're not trying to, but I wouldn't get too laudatory about Virginia history because this, you know, oh, yeah. about the same time, uh, you know, where the first uh, black slaves are being landed in Hampton, and uh, it wasn't really a representative government. It was representative for a tiny minority of landowners, basically, and uh, it would be years and years before it really became more officially democratic in its reach. Uh, but yeah, it just you know, once again, Trump, Trump the day. Well, you mentioned uh, LeVar Stoney and Justin Fairfax a moment ago. Let's talk a little bit about about the governor's race coming up or like the positioning for the next governor's race. Now, that doesn't happen until 2021, um, but already there's a lot of thought about who might be the next governor after Ralph Northam. Check in on on who some of those potential candidates are. Sure. Um, Yeah, it was kind of interesting because some of the uh, savvier uh, editorial writers and commentators on the Jamestown event kind of segued a bit into – uh, potential gubernatorial candidates in 2021, and um, for example, the very fact that Justin Fairfax is, you know, kind of taken himself out or is being taken out by these uh, unproven sexual allegations, and the fact that he did show up at Jamestown, that kind of gives uh, Lavar Stoney, as I mentioned before, a, a, a better shot or more of a possibility of becoming a Democratic possibility. Another is Jennifer McClellan, who is a uh, a delegate from uh, Richmond who um, is, is well qualified. Um, she knew of and UVA Law School and, 
you know, seems to be pretty solid. And also, I'm not sure what's going on, but Mark Herring, the uh, longtime attorney general, uh, might also run. Uh, he's announced that some months ago, but he also has been caught up in a vaguely similar blackface scandal that Ralph Northam, who can't succeed himself as governor, is involved with. On the Republican side, the one announced person is Bill Stanley, who's uh, from way down in uh, Uraniumville, uh, Pennsylvania, Franklin area, uh, Franklin mostly. And, uh, you know, he's a very strong GOP candidate in the General Assembly. Uh, I wrote about him back in 2011, about how he seemed to be using undue influence on local politicians to uh, approve a uranium mining operation that was later nixed. And that brought up, uh, that was under the McDonald, uh, Robert McDonald uh, administration. Anyway, so it's going to be interesting. You're beginning to see the lines drawn. Yeah. Any any early, uh, I mean, we can't say any conclusions yet, but any early takeaways from what we're starting to see? Well, I mean, it's going to be interesting because, I mean, you know, things seem to be set. This is pretty ancient news, but back in the winter, you know, it looked like, you know, you have Northam, who can't run again, and you got um, Justin Fairfax, who seems like a strong leader, and that's all wiped away by scandal. Although, luckily for those individuals, they haven't been pushed out yet. So this is giving rise to a, a new cast of characters. And, and that's probably pretty healthy, I think. I mean, to see what, what, what's going on to take us into the future. Cool. Well, let's uh, shift it back to 2019 just a little bit. This fall, really quite soon, just a few months away, is the general election for both state Senate and state House in the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. And one of those races is Nick Freitas, who is a, a House right. representative, a state state House. Um uh, from Culpepper. Um, he is not on the ballot as of right now because of a, sort of a paperwork error, it seemed like. What's going on? Yeah, that seems rather unusual. Um, well, Nick Fetus was kind of a being billed as a new type of uh, GOP politician for the state. He's young. He's good looking. He was a Green Beret. He um, is more libertarian than you know either social or uh, Main Street conservative. And um, he actually almost uh, won the um, Republican nomination to run for U.S. Senate. Uh, Corey Stewart, unfortunately, got that. And, of course, he was a disaster. But meanwhile, but it's kind of unusual that someone who seems to have everything going for him, like Nick Freitas, somehow failed to properly file to run for election, re-election. And that gives his opponent, Democrat Ann Ridgway, a big chance. The last I heard is that uh, the state board of elections is not says that Freitas can't refile. He's missed the deadline. He can run as a write-in, but that really is kind of not going to go anywhere. I mean, it really would, unless it's extremely uh, strange situation. So it looks like he's taken himself out by you know unforced error or whatever. We don't know. Yeah. Now he said in a statement recently that he is going to try and appeal it next week when the state board of elections uh, convenes again. Um, but it, I mean, they've made their issue, or rather, they made their ruling, and you know, I don't know if they're going to just reverse mm-hmm. it. Yeah, if that would be, I think that would make it. Don't get me wrong about this, but the third time he's tried to adjust it, and uh, you know, as you say, you know, the, uh, the board has already made its decision, and I, unless there is something really new that we don't know about revealed, I don't see why they would go back on their decision. Well, now, usually one race at the General Assembly wouldn't be that big a deal, but both the House and the Senate in Virginia have a majority of one seat for the Republican majority. So if if a safe Republican district like Freitas's suddenly flips to Dem, that's already sort of possibly shifting the balance of power. 
Absolutely. That's a good point you're bringing up because it's a very, very razor thin race for both houses. And um, the Democrats have been riding a wave. They, they did well in the congressional races last November. And it, it doesn't take many people falling out. It doesn't take too many Frieda's episodes to make to give the Democrats the, the big victory. So, I mean, you know, this, that's why the Frieda's case is so important, because it really, first off, he's an up and coming Republican politician who stumbled. And secondly, he could have made a big difference in, you know, whether uh, you know, the House is, uh, remains Republican or not. Well, and as they say in baseball, it's sort of like an unforced error. <laughs> I've been through, through plenty of those myself. <laughs> All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. We'll talk next week. Sure. Bye-bye. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Up last, we have an interview with A.D. Carson that was done by the Virginia Humanities Foundation for their podcast, With Good Reason. A.D., you say metaphors allow us to talk around the thing we really want to talk about, but don't. Why are metaphors easier? Isn't it easier to name the thing? Yeah, I believe that it is easier to name the thing that we want to talk about. But when we do that, then we automatically receive pushback from the people with whom we're talking. So much of your thinking and writing and rapping has been around this idea of the power of language mm-hmm. and the power of naming. It creates violence. Yeah, I mean, if we think about George Zimmerman on a phone call, he's describing someone as a criminal or he's describing someone as a thug or he's describing these guys who always get away with it. The violence occurs in that instance when he makes those descriptions and then that violence is fulfilled whenever he kills Trayvon Martin. Very often when we use those kinds of descriptors, criminal, thug, uh, these guys who get away with it, even in some instances when we use the descriptor like rapper, what we're doing is we're relegating people to a place in language So if we think, for instance, about there was a man who was killed by police in California. His name is Willie McCoy. My interaction with Willie McCoy's story began with me reading a headline that says, rapper killed by California police. And I wondered what that headline was really trying to convey to me. If that headline read, poet killed by California police, would I have a different response to it? And the answer to that is probably yes. In the same way that if I, as a rapper who's a professor, am murdered and someone chose to write professor killed by Virginia police as opposed to rapper killed by Virginia police, responses to my death or to the description of my death would be much different. So why was the choice made? What does the word rapper do to describe the person who was killed by the police? 
When you were getting your Ph.D. in Clemson, South Carolina, you wrote a letter to your mother in case you were killed. Why? I was going to take as much care into my interaction with South Carolina as I possibly could. There's all of this stuff that's happening. You have like the shooting of a passenger who's pulled over, who's asked by a South Carolina officer to get his ID. And then when he goes to get his ID, that officer shoots him. You have Alton Sterling. You have Walter Scott. You have the shooting in Charleston. You have all of these things that are happening all around you. And you're living on a campus in a community where there are lots of people who are, every time you say that these things matter and you're distressed by them going on, there's another community around you that's saying these things are okay. Or, you know, why did he run? Or what did he do in order for the officer to, you know, all of those things are happening. And so when I wrote that piece called To My Mother, uh, Just In Case, I was thinking of the reality of my being who I am in South Carolina. If I were pulled over and detained and then word got out that I'd taken my own life, I want my mom to investigate that. I want my family to ask questions because I needed to articulate. I needed to make sure that there was a document that said, I don't feel like being detained would be the kind of thing that would make me take me away from her. I wouldn't do that. And so if that happened, no matter what the circumstances looked like, please find out what really happened. No sooner did you get your PhD from Clemson than you were hired at the University of Virginia, but you came on board at the University of Virginia right before the alt-right marched into town or marched on town with torches armed and hateful slogans. How did you process that? Well, you know, one of the things that I said down in Clemson, and, um, and I still believe it to this day, because people would ask all the time, well, why are you in Clemson? If these things are happening, then why don't you go somewhere else? And I say, well, let's say we imagine the United States as a crime scene. And I think that there are some pretty strong arguments that it is. And evidence of that crime is all over this country. When certain evidence that's been buried or been ignored is discovered, and then everyone is talking about it, that doesn't make the rest of the place not a crime scene. That just means that we're now focusing on this specific evidence for this specific moment. So the, the alt-right here in Charlottesville is one example, or the so-called blackface controversy is another example. And because all of this evidence of th these crimes has been so successfully buried, and I say successfully, not like cleverly, but has been successfully buried, or let's say like deliberately and successfully ignored for such a long time, we're going to continue to uncover evidence of these crimes. And if we were to move every time we found evidence of the crime that became America, then we would find no place. We would find welcome in no place. So the thing that I was saying about Clemson not using accurate language to describe 
what had been there and what is currently there? Plantations. Yes. The same can be said about Charlottesville. The alt-right left, so to speak, but what brought them there is still here. And I think that we have to reckon with that. And perhaps we stop asking politely for people to stop picking and plucking and pillaging and plundering and killing and wondering why people are pissed off. And maybe metaphors are no easier because some fruit grows where it's less likely to fall like this, where it's more likely to see mature. A.D. Carson is a professor of hip hop in the global south at the University of Virginia. You can find a link to his mixtapes and to his hip-hop album dissertation at withgoodreasonradio.org. Once again, that interview comes from With Good Reason. You can catch more from this interview and other podcasts from With Good Reason at withgoodreasonradio.org. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEEJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week. <laughs>